All right. So another story I want to tell you about Mike Lindell is that you always see him with a cross on. First time I ever saw him it was in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast, he had a big cross on. He is a Christian, and it's great because he's not afraid of his faith. And one of the other things you can get beyond the 100 products that he has, like the slippers that I've talked about, or the small pillows for your back if you're sitting too much in a chair, is you can get some religious pillows. Now, here's one. This has to do with Noah, Noah and the Ark. And on the backside, they have stories about Noah and the Ark. Now, some people may be offended by that because they think it's politically incorrect to talk about your faith or politically incorrect to call yourself a Christian. I think it's terrific in this day because the world has gone to hell, and we all know that. And it's good to know that even if you have grandchildren, you have young children, you want to get their morals and their values in order, you can always, and it's not just Noah that Mike Lindell is pushing. He's pushing all the biblical stories on these small pillows for kids. So if you're interested in having your kids introduced to some values and some Christian values and Christian beliefs and the stories in the Bible, go ahead and order any of these biblical pillows for Mike Lindell. Now, how do you get them? You get them by the promo code CDM. That's us. So just put in promo code CDM and you can get a biblical pillow for your grandchildren or your young children. And now let's get to our guests. So I just want to introduce Laura Mills to Amer let me uh, to American Conversations. Uh, and Laura, you're you're an attorney in the state of Ohio. I am. Tell us a little bit about your background and your background and then also your practice of law. Okay. So I have been practicing here in, in the state of Ohio for 27 years. I'm licensed in DC and I practice in a few other states as well. And primarily my practice is litigation based. We do a lot of corporate litigation, but we do medical malpractice. We take on what I'll call our social injustice cases. So usually what we do from a pro bono standpoint as as opposed to getting involved with one specific organization, we just find those cases throughout the year that we feel we should give our time to. And so we've done that in many different areas. And it's just how we kind of give back to the community. So I'm very community-based. Um, I'm here in Canton. I own the, my law firm building here in Canton. I participate in a lot of community events, community um, development projects and really generally give back um, as much as I possibly can. And I think that's the reason that this case that we're about to discuss, one of the attorneys for this family uh, recommended that the family come to me because I do take unusual cases. Those that seem more challenging than others um, usually are the ones that I put my heart and soul in. And so how do, First of all, how do people find you? Um, I think after 27 years, you know, we've had some high profile cases, um, certainly throughout the state and even throughout the country. I mean, I've been on Good Morning America and Fox News and Dr. Phil, and I've gotten a lot of local media attention for all of the work um, towards domestic violence that I do. I represent a lot of battered women, a lot of victims, children. And so at least in this particular area, that's where my recognition has grown. What's the name of your firm? The name of my firm is Mills, Mills, Feely, and Lucas. We are the oldest firm here in Canton, Ohio. Um, we are a woman-owned firm at this point in time, and we pretty much have a general practice. We help, like I said, families and individuals. 
All right. So so let's talk about how you got involved uh, in the COVID arena. So I was not very involved in the COVID arena, although I certainly had my personal views until this family approached me. And it was Erin Michaels uh, is the woman's name. Her husband, Todd Michaels, was in the hospital. He was 45 years old. She was waiting every day for a call from the nurse who gave her very limited information about her husband. And she was not and, and she was not allowed to be in the hospital at that point in time. Right. They were quarantined. So this this family that we're speaking of, Aaron Michaels, uh, obviously the wife, they have a 12 year old daughter. And then Todd Michaels, who was the patient at the time, was in the hospital. And she was she was not getting very much um, information from any doctor. She was getting very limited information from the nurse. She didn't really know what was going on and she wanted to try alternative therapies. So she felt like she was in the dark. She started researching. She started reaching out, learning of different potential therapies, ivermectin being one of them, high dose vitamin C, other type of medications that might be helpful for her husband. And how long was he, how long was he sick? And at what stage did he go to the hospital? So Uh, Both Erin and her husband contracted COVID about the same time, which was December 8th, 2021. And by December 10th, 2021, he was coughing pretty heavily. Um, They knew enough to to have a pulse ox uh, in their house and his oxygen levels were low. They were concerned about it. And he went into the hospital um, around December 10th of 2021. And it took about five days, unfortunately, for this family that when he first entered the hospital, obviously entered alone because his wife could not go with him. It took a number of days until a pulmonologist could see him. So for the first five days, he was not on a ventilator, although they started that rendezvous um, really right out of the gate. And Aaron could not see him really until the end of December, because at that point in time, I think it was a a strict 14 or 15 day quarantine in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And they just were not really interacting with her. So this attorney who I knew is the one that referred this family in to see me. And the first step that I took was to get an emergency guardianship because she had no rights. So everybody that's under this perception that you have rights to help your spouse in a situation like that, forget it. You don't have any rights. You don't have a medical health care power of attorney. You're not able to get medical records or really speak intelligently to any doctors about a medical plan. Well, there's two there's two lessons learned at that stage. One, you need to get a health proxy. Everybody needs to get a health proxy. These Everybody. Days. Because it, 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 under pre-COVID situations at some hospitals, one, you would have act, physical access to see how they're doing. Two, you could communicate with the, the nurses or the doctors in the room with your loved one. Yes. And then if things started going downhill, you can actually do something about it because you can confront them. But now it's it's impossible because of the policies um, that are strict. Uh, if the hospital administration says we're, we're using remdesivir, and you have no choice, and there's nobody there to protect you or to be your medical advocate in the in the hospital. Um, it's pretty much taken out of the family's hands, isn't it? It is a hundred percent. I mean, it was a lesson learned, and so mm-hmm. I have since this case talked to everyone, not only for your spouse, your children. I mean, everyone needs a healthcare power of attorney because if you can't use your voice, you don't have any other voice. 
And so one of the programs that we put on a few days ago, it talks about how you lose all rights as soon as you cross that threshold into the emergency room. They're gone. You're in jail. You're hospital jail. That's what it is. It is. So what happened What happened in this case with Todd and Aaron? So then we had to, locally, we had to go to our probate uh, court in order to seek a guardianship. And that was not as easy as you might think. Because even our probate court was wondering why she didn't have access to her husband's medical records, why she didn't have access to the doctors. And so we really had to convince, it was a magistrate at that point in time, that she needed this. It was not an easy step. Uh, we had to attend a hearing. She had to provide testimony on how she had been kind of locked out of this. And we were able to secure a guardianship. They gave it to her for 72 hours. Why only 72 hours? Only 72 hours, generally speaking, is an emergency guardianship, and then you have to request more time. So we took our 72 hours, requested the medical records, but then we couldn't get them right away. So then we had to wait. And then we went back to probate court and said, we need more than 72 hours. He's still in terrible shape, and we may have to file a lawsuit, and we're seeking you know, other doctors and alternative alternative therapies. And so we were able to secure the guardianship for 30 days. So then, at that point in time, did it was, was Aaron informed whether or not he was on a ventilator, whether or not he was on a remdesivir? I mean, were the doctors talking to her as the spouse? So what she was informed is that he was on a ventilator because he was sedated. So she couldn't speak to him in any way, shape, or form. So she knew that he was on his belly, so to speak. He couldn't even get um, to, to his back in order to breathe. So they had him on his stomach. They had him on oxygen. And every day the nurse would call and say, he's on 90% oxygen. Or today he needs 95% oxygen. It was usually somewhere between 90 and 100. And that's really all the information that she was able to receive. Once... We were able to secure those records. He was on over 27 different medications. So it Did was the doctor uh, ever call her? So once she was permitted to go into the hospital, she was able to have a face-to-face -face conversation with the doctor. But unfortunately, too, during this time, the doctors change. Right? Every week you have a different doctor. So even though you may have a conversation with one, it's going to be very different when you have a conversation with the next doctor that's just the attending physician for that particular floor. But before she was allowed, before Aaron was allowed to get into the hospital, when she was trying to get the guardianship to even get copies of the medical records, did any doctor call her? I believe that she had one conversation with a doctor prior to getting that guardianship, but it wasn't very detailed. I mean, they did say your husband is a very sick man. So she knew that. Did they tell her before they put him on ventilators that they were going to put him on ventilators? I don't believe that they told her prior to the ventilator. She knew he was on a ventilator because obviously he was sedated, could no longer speak to her. She had some phone communication with him during that small five-day window before he went on a ventilator. Did he communicate to her that he was going to be put on a ventilator? I do not know that. All right. I do not know. All right. So the, the transparency issue is not full transparency under conditions like this. It is, not, it is not transparency because she didn't have an understanding of all the medications that he was on. And his, his medical records were quite lengthy. 
And it had in those medical records that really there needed to be end of life decisions made for this man. So she needed those medical records, obviously, to even understand what was going on with her husband and to seek any additional treatment or care. So the next step was to try to find a doctor that we felt would treat her husband the way she wanted him to be treated. And we were able to do that. So we found a doctor here locally, Dr. Kadir, who's also going to be part of this May 4th event, which we'll talk about in a, in, in a little bit. And she had, was treating a number of COVID patients, but she was treating early treatment to these COVID patients. So she was getting them into her office and she was having real success with the high dose vitamin C and with the ivermectin. So she was prescribing mm -hmm. both to patients that came in. And she was sending nurses into homes to treat patients. And she was doing everything she could very successfully. So when she heard about Todd's case, she obviously understood that he was in very bad shape. But the risk of trying ivermectin and high-dose vitamin C at that stage of his life, there is no risk. If anything, This would, this would have been three weeks later. Yes, this would have been three weeks later. So in fact... By the time she was involved was the very end of December, first part of January. And I think the worst part about this entire story, other than obviously uh, Todd passing away, is that Erin took all of the medical literature that she had researched, that we had researched, and that Dr. Kadir had as well. She took it all into the hospital. And she asked the doctor to just read the literature. And she asked him at the very least to provide the high-dose vitamin C. She said, even if you won't give the ivermectin, can my husband please have the high-dose vitamin C? And they kind of acted as if they would consider it. And I, I think that's the worst part is that she called me and said, we may not have to go to court. We might be able to just do this with the hospital, work with them, and get my husband the vitamin C. And she was very optimistic. And all they ended up doing was giving... Um, a few crushed tablets of vitamin C, probably less than I take on a, on a daily basis, to somewhat pacify her. And when she learned that they weren't actually giving the vitamin C through the IV, they were just crushing a little bit up in his fooding, uh, feeding tube, she was just completely dismayed. It felt hoodwinked, so to speak, that she then wasted, I mean, we wasted a good three or four days of trying to get into court because she had this belief that they were going to work with her. Believing in the medical divinity of the white coat. Yeah, she really did. Betrayed. And she was betrayed. And so by the time, and and Aaron is is a wonderful woman. She will actually be there on May 4th as well. And she's been speaking out, but she, her personality, and I'm sure she would describe this as a little more passive. So she believed that they would work with her, but when she understood that they were not, she found her voice. And she then wanted a sit down with the doctor to, to see what had happened and why this was happening. Did she get that face to face with the doctor? She did. Was she satisfied? Uh, no. When she got the face-to-face -face, um, meeting with the doctor, he told her he didn't want to hear anything more about her vitamin C and that he was tired of it. And then they actually, 
the hospital restricted the visitation rights for the family. So once Todd was out of quarantine, so to speak, they were permitting his mother, they were permitting his wife, Aaron, they were permitting Aaron's father and the 12 year old daughter, even though in the ICU, you were supposed to be at least 18 years of age. They were allowing family members to visit. When this happened, they restricted that visitation. They let Aaron go in, but they would not allow Aaron's father and they would not allow his daughter to go in to see him. So she then suffered some retaliation, so to speak, by her speaking out. And so at that point in time, she said, we have to file a lawsuit. We have to try to see what we can do because she received zero cooperation. So we filed, we filed the lawsuit. Dr. Kadir, who had been willing to help, agreed to be an expert, to come into the courtroom, to obviously testify on the Michael's behalf, which was courageous, obviously, um, but courageous in and of itself in our community because they're speaking out against doctors who want to provide the, these alternative medicines, right? They're saying it's misinformation. They're challenging some physicians to the state board based on this misinformation is what they call it. So for Dr. Kadir to, you know, not even think twice and decide to help this family, um, she deserves, you know, a lot of praise in that regard. She definitely did the right thing. Absolutely, because they're going. They're, I mean, they have been. The medical boards have been going after doctors even before COVID hit the planet, um, mm -hmm. and trying to get their medical license taken away if they gave more than you know five or six exemptions in a year. Exactly, but she said someone's life is at stake. This is this is what I need to do, and so. Dr. Kadir and I prepared her testimony over the weekend. We filed the lawsuit on a Monday morning. Thankfully, we were able to get in to see the judge quite quickly, within an hour or so. And the hospital sent their lawyers over to the courthouse as well. We argued. And based on the arguments, the judge said, I need testimony. If you want a full-blown hearing, then let's get this hearing quickly because time is of the essence. I mean, at this point in time, it was that was January 11th and Todd had been on a ventilator since December 15th. So that's a long time. Mm. So she was, the judge was kind enough to give us that hearing Wednesday and Wednesday afternoon, we had about a five hour hearing. What's telling about the hearing is that Altman hospital put that same doctor on the stand that Aaron had handed those articles to and he admitted that he had not read one article, nor had he read any of the medical literature on high-dose vitamin C, ivermectin, or any of these other alternative therapies, nor would he. As Why? He no what, was it, what was the stated reason that he would not read them? He had no interest in learning about anything like that, reading the medical literature. He was going to do what his group, which was a... Um, his ER group, what his doctor's group believed in, that's what he was going to, to do. And unless his group said to do otherwise, he wasn't interested in it. Did he mention at any point in time that we, we don't have any um, direction from the CDC and the FDA, so the hospital hasn't received uh, protocols, or this is what the protocols were from Desivere and ventilators? 
Yeah, he believed the protocol to be the remdesivir and the ventilators. And until somebody told him otherwise, he was not going to vary from that protocol in any way, shape, or form. Can you mention his name? Because I, I, I'm all for exposing people by their names when they when doctors become robots. Yes, Dr. Knock. How do you spell it? K-N-O-C-H. K-N-O-C-H. Remember his first name? I do not. Okay, but Dr. Knock. Okay, so Dr. Knock, and what is the name of the hospital? Altman Hospital. Altman Hospital, and, and where in Ohio? We're in Canton, Ohio, Stark in County. In Canton. And so... Altman Hospital, Canton, Ohio, Dr. Knock. Everybody should stay away from him. I mean, if he's not, if he's not gonna, if he's not gonna read, if he doesn't want, if he doesn't have any curiosity, if he doesn't think that doctors can't learn, even though they have their medical degree, that something might work, that there's something alternative to it, uh, and that the family doesn't have a say, that's not a really good, that's not a doctor who's engaged with the patient. He's engaged with the policy. Yes. It was all about the protocol to him without any variation. And we asked him if he was familiar with any of the doctors with the FLCC, if he was familiar with any of the medical literature, anything that they had put out as their own protocol. No, not familiar with it and didn't want to become familiar with it. That was loud and clear. <clears throat> That's pretty frightening. That's pretty frightening. How is Erin doing now? How's her daughter doing? They're doing as well as can be expected. Erin's um, husband was kind of the uh, sole supporter of the family. Erin stayed home. And so, you know, now obviously her life is, is going to change. But she was here when we had our event last week. Dr. Kadir and I both spoke and we talked about medical freedom and medical choice. And she feels that she needs to get out there on behalf of her husband to, to speak about her story. So she's been very brave throughout this. Well, that's good that she's found her voice. It's a sad way to find your voice. I mean, that's, it that's it, it's a very sad. So how many other cases, Laura, do you have similar to this? I do not have any similar cases to this right now. I am part, we do have a, it's called kind of a COVID base camp here in Ohio. And we have a number of lawyers that were all part of the group. So when something mm -hmm. happens, any one of us can provide forms, insight, co-counsel, help one another. Uh, and we really haven't had any other hospital cases like this because unfortunately, the uh, Michael's case is really the third case here in Ohio. The first one was a case closer to Cincinnati. Originally, they provided injunctive relief and allowed the patient to have the ivermectin. And then that was quickly overturned. And then the judge um, shut down that injunction and the ivermectin was taken away from the patient and the patient died. And then there was another case close to Columbus. They denied the injunction and that patient died. And then in my particular case, our judge was considering it and she was in the midst of considering it Friday morning. So this was a Wednesday afternoon hearing. Friday morning, she's still considering whether or not to provide us the injunctive relief. And Todd passed away. Tragic. So it is tragic. tragic. So the we don't have a ruling, and that in and that way we can't use it, obviously, to promote for any other cases. So the lesson learned here is that doctors need to be educated. Lawyers need to be educated. The ER management, the doctors, the ICU doctors need to be educated. 
but it still is going to be, I mean, you may have all the legal and judicial apparatuses on the patient's side, but even if you get in the door, you may not, you may not win because the doctor chooses not to be curious, not to be creative, not to even read any of the li literature put out there by doctors who have treated COVID patients in the past. And even if he did, the hospital administration may overrule that doctor at, at a specific hospital. Absolutely. I know for certain that Altman Hospital does not allow the pharmacy to even prescribe the ivermectin. So that's one of the issues that you have is if you're going to have a doctor from the outside come in and that doctor does not have hospital privileges, then again, you're met with an additional hurdle to overcome. And so our message from that case has really been, make sure you have your medical power of attorney. I mean, that's critical, but you also need to have early treatment. And I think that's hard for people to understand because we've lived with COVID where everything that we've read and heard is stay at home. And then if it gets bad enough, you go to the emergency room, right? Mm -hmm. They deterred any type of early treatment and they deterred that early treatment because they want everyone to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so if, if people think there's an early treatment, then they're not going to be as interested in the vaccine because they're, gonna, they're going to think there's another way to go about this. So we have been trying to get the message out for this particular COVID strain or whatever other variants we have going on that early treatment is important and finding a medical doctor who you trust before something as serious as needing to get on a, a ventilator or needing to go to the hospital happens. That's the most critical piece, I think, to understand there's early treatment and to find that physician who's going to provide it to you. And also to get rid of those people that say, stay at home until your lips are blue and then go to the ER. And the nurses are witnessing patients coming in who can't breathe or their lips are blue, knowing because that's that's part of where my lights went on in 2020 early on. I just happened to know a lot of nurses who were telling me that the ventilator, we were killing people on the ventilators. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, on mm -hmm. that ventilator, he obviously he developed COVID pneumonia, which is uh, whatever what happens with the ventilator. And then he had a few other different organisms. So his lungs, I mean, his body just could not continue to fight that infection. COVID was long gone mm -hmm. uh, in his system, but the effects from that, he, he couldn't fight. Did they put him on uh, any blood thinners? Do you remember? Originally, they did. Mm-hmm. They put him on some blood thinners. He did have a clot, I believe in his leg that they were concerned about. So he was on blood thinners. They were trying to work through that. They had a difficult time trying to deal with the bacteria that was in his lungs. So they were trying different types of antibiotics in order to find the right one uh, to combat that bacteria. So he was fighting it just from so many different realms. Did but they put, did they put that on uh, antioxidants? No, not to my knowledge. Because we, ha we have heard doing a number of conversations with doctors, uh, blood thinners, antioxidants, uh, and, you know, and then pre preventive, I mean, obviously early treatments, but if you ended up in the hospital, blood thinners and antioxidants were very important. Very important. And Dr. Kadir still speaks to this high dose vitamin C. I mean, mm -hmm. she really is a firm believer in that. 
And so she's been trying to spread the word and I've been trying to spread the word as well, just to make sure that get ahead of it, have the doctor that, you know, have the prescriptions that maybe that you need or over the counter medications that make the early treatment at least possible to relieve some of those symptoms, as opposed to, yes, this, this entire program that we were fed as far as stay home, quarantine, stay home, don't go out, do nothing, wait. It's not acceptable. So tell us about this uh, May 4th event that uh, Todd Wood and I are going to be in attendance at um, in Columbus, Ohio. Yes. So there's a dinner the night before where I think will be nice. Everybody can kind of get together and and share ideas for the program uh, the very next day. But I think it's to build further awareness. I mean, we've had a very difficult time getting any type of legislation behind some of the ideas that we've talked about today. And this is to promote that legislation and get people to hear from us. So it should be from 930 to 230 on May 4th in the House. And we're trying to get as many people there in attendance, because obviously we need the voices heard, that we need some legislation to protect ourselves. Currently, we are not protected. And that's mm -hmm. going to be true of COVID or any other, God forbid, variant or pandemic that we're going to experience in the future. We cannot allow our rights to completely get eroded and continue to get eroded through the process. So this is really to garner support for that and to be heard. And to protect the children, uh, the little yep. ones from the from the mandated vaccinations. Absolutely. The idea that children should have those vaccinations or the pregnant women should have vaccinations. We were never we were never promoting pregnant women to have a vaccine before COVID. Mm -hmm. Absolutely makes no sense. And then all of a sudden it was so safe. Absolutely. You have to have the vaccine. And obviously, we've all seen the studies that there's some serious risks and harms in doing so. There are, there are. And, and as a result of that, the numbers are, you know, even though no one has the exact numbers of the uh, causational deaths or the, uh, the entire number of the uh, adverse effects, we know that the, that the numbers are high enough compared to years past that it should be a great pause and a complete screeching halt at this point in time. Absolutely. Right. Have you found that medical freedom is a, is a notion that is uh, people are becoming more aware of in Ohio over the course of the last two years? I think they are. I mean, we had a, you know, we had a very nice attendance um, at our program, and I attended another program probably about six weeks earlier that was even much larger uh, up in Stowe, Ohio, stand up. Um, for freedom. And like I said, just the fact that we even have this group of about 50 lawyers who are trying to help one another, we're trying to get the word out. We just need more people to understand that you, you really don't have those medical choices that you think you have. And so you just, you live in this vacuum because until you're sick and it's too late is when these people are realizing it. So we need to get everybody who's, who's still healthy and out there and active. And we need them to understand that there are these changes that need to take place and that we really have to protect our medical choice. Absolutely protect it. 
have you have you put up on any of the websites out there in Ohio? I mean, where can they find the information for, you know, one, two, one, two, three, four, five? You know, this is what you need to do to prepare yourself for any medical emergency at this point in time related to COVID or pandemics or anything else. We will have up probably within the next week the PowerPoint presentation that Dr. Kadir and I we worked on for quite some time. There's maybe I don't know, 45 slides to it. Mm-hmm. And it starts out with really what you need to know from a legal standpoint. It does a nice job going through um, the medical literature. It does a nice job going through really what you can do now for early treatment. And then Dr. Kadir has some suggestions as well, even for prescriptions and medical, um, different types of preventative medicine that you can take ahead of any type of viral concern or future pandemic. And her and I are going to do a voiceover of that PowerPoint presentation, get that up on YouTube. We didn't want to tape our event the other night because it was a nice open discussion and we wanted people to participate. But we'll do a voiceover of that PowerPoint so that we can get that out to as many people as possible. That's great, Laura. Thank you so much. And I mean, it's, it must be, are, are they coming after the doctors in, in Ohio who, when they're challenging the, the system? Are they coming after the lawyers that are helping the doctors? You know, there isn't, thankfully, as lawyers, we're really not under attack. I know that the medical professionals are feeling that attack because obviously they're concerned for their licenses. And so, yes, they feel if they step up and step out that they are Um, subject to attack. The lawyers were still pretty safe, which is why we've said it it takes those doctors who believe and the lawyers to fight to come together. Our program was called When Law Meets Medicine, and I think it's going to take both in order to make a difference. That's a great title, When Law Meets Medicine. Well, I, I can't wait to to see you guys in Ohio on May 4th. I think it's going to be very interesting because Ohio's governor, uh, Dwayne, uh, Dwayne, was one of the first governors to offer, you know, a lottery opportunity you know, if you got vaccinated. And Pharma, Pharma has some interesting links in the state to the Wuhan lab, and we'll be presenting some information on that as we get closer. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you, Christine. Look forward to seeing you on the 4th.